Al Jazeera podcast. Last week, Al Jazeera's Bernard Smith was offered tea and biscuits for hours in a very impressive palace. I'm Bernard Smith for Al Jazeera, and we're going to a long press conference with Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. Along with much of the rest of the global press corps, Bernard was trying to answer the big question. Where is Yevgeny Prigozhin? Prigozhin and his mercenary force, known as the Wagner Group, launched a failed mutiny against Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow just weeks earlier. The Belarusian president, Lukashenko, helped broker the deal that ended the standoff. Bernard and everyone else wanted to find out if Prigozhin was still there. So we all turned up to this press conference. And one of the first things that Lukashenko said in this press conference, which went on for four hours, was that Prigozhin wasn't here. Lukashenko said Prigozhin had been in Belarus, but he returned to Russia. In terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg. Or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere. But he's not on the territory of Belarus now. On Monday, the Kremlin released information that Putin and Prigozhin met days after the Wagner Group's failed siege. Putin met with Prigozhin five days after the Wagner armed mutiny. Uh, the meeting took place in the Kremlin on June the 29th. So where exactly is Yevgeny Prigozhin now? And more importantly, where's the loyalty of his fighters scattered around the globe? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The Wagner Group has become an international name for its decisive role fighting alongside Russian soldiers in the war in Ukraine. But it's also had fighters scattered around the globe for a decade, from Crimea to the Central African Republic. Journalist Anchal Vora is based in Brussels, and while much of the world was wondering if Moscow would fall, she was looking elsewhere. My name is Anchal Vora. I am a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. So I write for them from the Middle East, South Asia, and Europe. Anchal, to have this conversation, we need to start with the drama of June. June 24th is when the world's eyes were on Moscow. We're now hearing reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin himself was fleeing the city. Armed rebellion is apparently underway in Russia as a convoy of rebel mercenaries is heading toward Moscow after seizing a southern city overnight. Vladimir Putin is vowing to crush the rebels, ordering helicopters to open fire on the Wagner militia. But you didn't just have your eye on Moscow because Wagner, which is run by Evgeny Prigozhin, who was once quite close to Putin, has forces in several different countries around the globe. And you were watching one of them, Syria. What was happening with Prigozhin's forces there? What were the messages being exchanged on the ground? So this is very interesting. You know, we kind of all wake up on the 24th and we see... Russian President Putin's television address where he's essentially talking about the traitors would be dealt with. 
Vladimir Putin has vowed to brutally punish the head of Russia's biggest paramilitary group for launching what he called an armed rebellion against Moscow. Any blackmail, any attempts to cause domestic discord are doomed to failure. But the night before, on 23rd itself, there were things happening in Syria. Now, of course, as you'd understand, the Kremlin does not easily leak information. It's very difficult to find out what's really going on. But I've been covering Syria for a while, and we uh, hear from the ground that a couple of mid to senior-ranking Wagner operatives are summoned at the base, the air base in Latakia, run by the Russians. Now, we don't know whether they're flown out of Syria whether they're arrested, but we do know that they're someone. Now, this information comes via Syrian activists and journalists on the ground. Now, these people, according to one account, are sent back to their bases and security on several of the Russian bases in Syria then is heightened. It's not clear how many people were summoned. We heard four first, and then somebody said, oh, the third one was, uh, you know, there are all sorts of, oh, yeah, but he was a Wagner fighter earlier, but he wasn't now. And Anshel says telling the difference between who's Wagner and who's not isn't easy in Syria. You know, it's been more than a decade of Syrian war. Wagner operatives first entered Syria in 2015. So it's very difficult for local people to kind of tell you which one's a Wagner fighter and which one's a Russian soldier. But... Those who had their eyes on the ground can still sort of make out the difference. So they say that as a deal is brokered by the Belarusian president between President Putin and Prigozhin, a day later, there's an attack then in Idlib. Those airstrikes in Syria's rebel house city of Idlib, which have killed at least 11 civilians. One thing I want to be clear about... Now, Idlib... The Syrian government keeps saying that they want to retake all of Idlib, which is the last rebel-held enclave. The activists on the ground in Idlib say that this attack was carried out by Russian jets. Then you have the Russian deputy foreign minister fly into Damascus, and there are two messages that he sends out. One is, don't let Wagner fighters fly out without our knowledge. And the second, that we're in control, that Putin is in control, and that Russia will continue to be Syrian government's ally. This, I think, is an attempt to kind of calm the nerves of the Syrian government in put, you know, sending a message all across the Middle East that the Russian government has not been weakened by this attempt and that they could still be relied on as a quote-unquote security provider. Remember, Syria is where it, it all really started. Syria is where it is a foothold for the Russian government, for the Putin administration in the Middle East. Let me just uh, make sure I'm understanding. So even before the failed mutiny, in Syria at least, something was happening. And these things kept happening even in the days after the failed mutiny? Yeah. So, I mean, I think as the mutiny began, I think not before, but as the mutiny began, things started to happen in Syria. There was actually not much of a movement in Wagner bases or by operatives on the ground themselves, which makes me think I'm not sure whether Prigozhin had actually planned this. But more of the Russian government was kind of moving quickly to make sure that its allies did not think that Putin was not in control, but also to make sure that the mutiny itself 
did not extend, you know, in other places where Wagner was operating. Because remember, Wagner as a mercenary force is in different countries only because of its links with the Kremlin. What about the Wagner officers that were detained? Do we know what happened to them? So we actually, we don't know. But according to one account, they were sent back to the bases that they were called from. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't tell you for sure whether, you know, that is the case, but that's according to one journalist who's spoken to us. But have they been flown out yet? There's no information. So you mentioned this. This is where it all started. Russia has continued to support Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, through more than a decade of civil war. And the Wagner Group was part of that. They were in Syria alongside Russia's army. How important was Wagner to Russia in Syria? Well, it was very important. Wagner is first seen in Crimea and Ukraine. And then in Syria, that's the springboard, so to say, for the group from where it kind of expands in different parts of Middle East and North Africa. The Wagner Group has been linked to military operations in Syria since 2015 and aiding governments combat rebel groups in the Central African Republic, Libya, Mali and Sudan. It could do things that Russian army couldn't. It could die and there would not be an uproar in the Russian society. By it could die, I mean Wagner fighters could die and, you know, there would be less answering to do because uh, they're not Russian soldiers. That's what we've seen in Ukraine as well. It was essentially trying to tell the Russian society that we are the good guys, we're fighting ISIS, we're trying to save and protect Syrian oil fields from ISIS, but actually also keeping a cut of the earnings of Syrian oil fields. So what's happening to Wagner forces in Syria now? I think no one knows for sure what's happening in Syria, but so far the information that one has managed to procure, it seems that the Russian government has managed to take control of the situation because the Syrian government is in control on the ground. And the message to Damascus has been that don't let any of the Wagner fighters get out. I think everyone's kind of waiting to see what the final deal is between the Kremlin, between President Putin and Wagner chief and Wagner fighters and commanders as well. Have Wagner forces been paid in Syria? So this is a very curious thing, right? So one of the journalists told us that he did not know whether the mutiny had had any, you know, visible impact or not. But he did say that every month in the last week or last 10 days, Wagner announces the day they're going to be paying salaries to local recruits, local as in Syrian recruits. And that did not happen last month. Now, we don't know whether they've been paid or not, but it did raise a question as to whether Russian government was thinking of packing up the operation. No one still has any clarity whether that's happening or not, whether they're going to actually be assimilated within regular forces. And again, I think that depends on the final deal, the final agreement that Wagner forces and uh, President Putin agree on. So what does Wagner's continued presence in Syria mean for its operations around the rest of the globe? That's after the break. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women. An unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? 
I am Frida Kahlo. A communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ancha, Syria is far from the only country where Wagner is active. So let's talk about Libya. The Wagner Group has been engaged alongside Commander Khalifa Hafsar, whose forces have been fighting a rebellion against the UN-backed government in Libya. According to Russia, there is no Wagner Group in Libya. So what do we actually know about what's happening there? Yeah, Russia earlier was saying there was no, they had, they had no idea about this mercenary force at all, even as Wagner fighters were dying in Syria in an operation against the Americans. So I don't think that they're any kind of, uh, they have any kind of credibility mm-hmm. uh, in that context. But what we do know through Libyan analysts is that Wagner fighters are still there. Wagner is still present in Libya. And essentially, they have two goals in Libya. One, as everywhere else, to further the Kremlin's foreign policy, to back Khalifa Haftar, to basically give him, provide him with some sort of defenses, to say that Russia still supports this guy, still supports this warlord, because Russia is also supporting other actors. But other than that, Libya is used as a springboard for Wagner to operate in other African countries, which are very, uh, you know, wealthy in terms of resources. And according to Libyan analysts we've spoken to, Wagner is still present at some of the bases in Libya. Mm from which it operates in the African countries. So is it safe to say that Wagner's operations in Libya are not on the same level as they are in Syria? I think, you know, Syria is, yes. I mean, they've always been involved in a lot more in Syria than they have been in Libya. They extended to Libya from Syria. They tried to hire Syrian fighters to fight in Libya. I don't know whether they were successful or not, but they certainly tried that. And they've always been sort of, I think they're more involved in other resource-rich African countries. By resources, I really mean gold and diamond in Central African Republic and Sudan. What Wagner has been doing, their modus operandi really is that we are mercenaries providing security services to Kremlin-friendly warlords, autocrats, dictators in exchange for their natural resources. And this is where they get their money. This is how they make their money. As for the group behind all these operations, Al Jazeera's Bernard Smith says Wagner is still a force to be reckoned with. We do know that they are the most effective fighting force that he has on the front lines in Ukraine. There could be as many as 30,000 Wagner fighters, and there'll be a core of them, a few thousand of them, who've been at Prigozhin's side since the start of his mercenary operations and who have remained loyal to him. They've got um, bases in Africa. They've been accused of human rights violations in Africa as well. They were accused of the massacre of more than 500 villages in central Mali about a year ago. But in some of those countries, locals fear that if the Wagner fighters disappear, then they could be replaced by 
even worse rebel fighters where they are. There are reports from other security experts in the CAR that some of the bases Wagner have, they're leaving. But there's no indication that Wagner's commanders, some of whom were invited to the Kremlin by Putin, along with Prigozhin himself, there's no indication that his commanders around him are anything but loyal. Finally, Anshal, overall, what does this change in the relationship between Moscow and the Wagner Group mean for Russia's global influence? Yeah, you know, wondering what must the dictators, the autocrats, all these, you know, guys in the Middle East who thought, oh, wow, look at Putin. He's a strong man. He rules Russia with an iron fist. He doesn't ask us about any kinds of human rights violations. He's a no problem guy. He's our kind of guy. Now I'm wondering, you know, as Prigozhin was was marching on Moscow, what must these guys have felt? I think that he's lost some sheen. I think he's fallen in their estimation. And I think that is the reason that the deputy foreign minister flew to Damascus. I think he was there not just to take a stock of what Wagner operatives were up to and to consolidate Russian gains, but also to sort of calm the nerves of Syrian government and to tell their Syrian dictator friend that President Putin is still in control and that he can still be relied on. So I think he's lost, you know, he was invincible, right? But I don't think he's seen as a strong man who, as, you know, someone who's infallible, invincible anymore. And that's The Take. We'll be back on Thursday. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Sonia Bagat, with Zaina Buzzer, Berenice Campana, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khalid Sultan, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.